0: Hello, everyone, and welcome to episode 268 of So You Want to Be a Writer. My name's Valerie Koo, and I'm here with Alison Tate. How are you, Al? I'm I'm okay. I'm fair to middling, everyone. I'm in the zone. You sound more than fair to middling. I'm trying to, I'm almost. trying to
1: sound enthusiastic about being fair to middling, which I you know I feel is oh, okay. I <laughs> think that's a fairly you know it's a fine line, and there are a few that could tread it, but I think I can do it.
0: Excellent. <laughs> I like this yeah. owl. Oh, perky! I like you like perky Al, do you? <laughs> yeah, I like perky owl, but I like the other. I like Al in all her forms. So yes. <laughs> okay. Well, you might hear slightly different audio on my end because I have tradies downstairs, and I had to move everything upstairs in order them in order for them to fix my cupboards. Where I usually do the recording. So if I sound a bit different. That's why. Okay. I think you sound the same. But, you know, anything's possible with our audio, as we've discovered. (laughs) Yes. Um, We want to give a big shout-out to Harris. Harris kindly left us a review on iTunes and titled it, Balm to My Literary Soul, which I love. And Harris said, I've been listening to the podcast for about a year now and it's been such a balm to my literary soul. Whilst on submission, I looked forward to your show each week to keep me distracted while the rejections rolled in, LOL. I particularly love the authors in residence, as it's so encouraging to hear the unique journey that each individual travels on the path to publication. Great work, folks. Oh, thank you, Harris. That's awesome. Really appreciate it. Oh, yes. As do I, always.
1: <laughs> I'm, uh, Did you just go somewhere? No, I didn't. You know what? I'm just sitting here thinking. Oh, it, it, I was kind of slightly distracted by the by the opening of balm to my literary soul, and I was kind of thinking about soothing things and soothing. And then I kind of soothed myself right out of the conversation.
0: <laughs> oh my goodness! <laughs> what we what soothing things were you thinking of?
1: Oh, oh, just even the word. Don't you think soothing is a very soothing word like balm balm is like balm just makes me think of warm baths and um and lavender you know like when people kind of heat lavender oil and it's got that makes me think of that sorry people i i really (laughs) honestly just obviously synapsed into another realm there at some
0: point clearly Mm. but speaking of soothing i discovered last night because i turned on the television and i said to my partner what is this right because he has been watching over breakfast, it's like his form of meditation. Um, it's like this YouTube channel called, he's discovered YouTube, right?
2: Okay. Ooh, <laughs> yeah. hello.
0: Very so modern. I'll, I'll turn around. Yeah, I know. I'll turn around and go, what is this? And he goes, Ah, oh, I'm watching ships almost nearly crash. Okay. <laughs> anyway, so he's discovered this channel on YouTube called something like, beautiful nature escapes or whatever and it's drone footage of amazing places around the world last night we were in Norway Mm. going through all of the I don't know fjords or whatever and the little fishing villages and stuff like that and apparently he sits there over breakfast and stares at um these beautiful this beautiful footage of places around the world and there's a, the thing is there's a watermark, like Nature Escapes or something at the bottom, but if you pay a certain number of dollars a month, you can watch Beautiful Nature Escapes without the watermark. Ridiculous. Okay. Ridiculous.
1: <laughs> well, you know, anyway. it might be interrupting his meditative moment, Might. My- but it's okay. a little bit like the slow TV thing on SBS. Where's Did you it? watch that? Have you seen any of that? No. No. Oh, What's that my TV? God. Okay, so of course the Builder discovered this because, you know, he's the man of the train documentaries and the man of the drones over the UK and the man, I mean, honestly, Mm. some of the the television. I've got to say it's a really interesting thing because I I go to school talks and I'm standing in front of a Year 10 group of like 300 kids one day and we were talking about where ideas come from and I had this moment where I somehow, I I must have been another sign synapse, but I was quite honest with them Mm. and I was telling them about my husband's obsession with train documentaries and how Actually, quite inspirational, they are from the perspective of, of the places mm-hmm. that they go and these random things that they talk about. And you can kind of jump those things off into story ideas. So, this is something that I've actually admitted to young people that I watch, right? Train documentaries. Yeah. However, um, so over summer, SBS has this slow TV thing where you can tune in and watch 10 hours. Of the gan traveling from point A to point B, like in real time, in <laughs> real time, like you're on the train, right? So it's that, or it's it's a oh ship God. going around the coast of of New Zealand, or it's something like that. But it's actually just hours and hours with no no voiceover, no documentary aspect of this is what you're looking at or anything like that. Just total silence and you watching this thing, this slow TV thing. So we happen to kind of land on it one day by mistake and we were sitting there and you know and and uh the builder was kind of like having a joke with me as this is what we're going to watch and my youngest son walks in and he likes to come in and watch train documentaries with us I mean yeah really yeah. and he rolled into the couch and we all sat there in silence for a moment and then he sort of rolled over onto the couch looked at both of us and was like what are we watching <laughs> What <laughs> is
0: this? you
1: have officially lost it into old people and right there yes, so yeah so yes. but apparently it's meditative and people watch it because it's kind of you know it helps them to zone they must find it soothing,
0: soothing. oh my goodness that is bizarre. I know look if you're into All slow right. tv
1: can you tell us talk to us about it tell us what it is that you love is it soothing yes. is it a balm what is
0: it and a big thank you to Harris yeah. for that jumping off point into things all balming and all soothing. <laughs> so if you do have 30 seconds to leave us a review or rating on iTunes, we'd really be grateful because it helps us in our rankings. Now let's move on to our um, useful links this week, Al. What have you got for Ooh, us? Oh, I have an excellent useful link. Um, and this excellent useful link
1: comes from the fabulous Australian YA author, Ellie Marnie, who we have interviewed on the podcast in the past, and who also, um, what else have we done with her? Something else. Can't remember. But anyway, she's she's been around for a while. Um, So she, this post is actually on my site, and it came about because towards the end of last year, I came across this Twitter thread where Ellie had put together a list of about twelve points as to if you were writing, if you were thinking about writing crime novels. For because that's what she writes, she writes kind of crime thrillers Mm. for for YA audience. Um, Mm. If you were thinking about, you know, she had these points of what to think about, these fantastic tips. And I read the thread and I was like, these are so good, I need a record of these. So I contacted her and said, Ellie, babe, how do you feel about writing me a blog post (laughs) for my site about how to write crime thrillers for uh, a YA audience? And she is such a great, a good egg that she has come through with this post and it's fantastic. It's such a generous sharing and imparting of information that if you are someone who wants to write crime thrillers for adults or teenagers um, you should definitely have a look at this. She breaks down the different subgenres of what these things are, the kind of conflict that you need, what's driving your story or, you know, what should be driving your story, how to maintain the momentum in a story. Um, the differences, if you're actually writing for that YA audience, what you have to keep in mind to keep your story active, you know, how to give your teen protagonist agency, agency is such yes. an important thing for a main character. Um, and also the kind of external things that, you're, that, that your, your sort of teen sleuth is going to have to be dealing with, you know, including adults telling them to stay out of it because essentially that's what it is. They can't drive. Often they don't have access to ready cash. You know, all the sorts of things. You know, they're supposed to be in school. They're supposed to be doing all of these other things and yet they're trying to, you know, solve a murder or whatever it is that they've, you know, managed to get themselves enmeshed in in. Um, so… I think uh, if you're sort of thinking that, well, A, if you like reading that kind of stuff, have a look at it because it's a really interesting breakdown of how these stories come together. But if you're writing mm. for this audience or for an adult audience, crime thriller, it's a great, like, pre C of all the stuff that you need to keep in mind when you're actually um when you're actually writing a story uh, in this area, so I'm going to put the link in the show notes. It's on my yeah. on my blog at alisontake.com. Um, if you're on the run and you just want to have a quick look at it, um, but it's mm. uh, yeah, it's a great great post and really really worth having a look at. Thank you, Ellie.
0: Definitely, it's very comprehensive. I particularly like how she defines the important differences between a suspense story and a thriller. Mm. And she says that in a suspense story, your reader knows something your protagonist doesn't Mm. and tension builds. In a thriller, your reader doesn't see the threat coming. So, you know, they're scared Mm. and surprised. Mm. But in a suspense thriller, which is a combination, the reader is waiting for something to happen. Your protagonist's job is to stop it from happening the reader identifies with the protagonist and becomes a participant in the race against time. Mm. So very, very um, good delineation between those categories. Yep. So, yep, you can find it at Alison's site, uh, alisontate.com, or we'll put the link in the show notes which you can find at so you want to be a Now, the other big thing that's happening this week is that we know that there are a lot of people who love children's and you know writing for children's kids teens and that there are a lot of people in the community who are aspiring authors of this age group so what we've done is we're releasing a brand new pop-up podcast called magic and mayhem and you can actually check it out at magicandmayhem.com.au or just search for magic and mayhem um on itunes and um What we've done is we've done the Netflix model. Like, you know when your House of Cards comes out or when some of your favourite TV shows come out and the entire series is ready? Uh Well, there are 40 episodes ready for you to download and binge listen in your commute or um, as you're doing the laundry or while you're walking the dog. You don't have to wait every week. Now, these are the children's and YA authors who we have – Interviewed before on So You Want to Be a Writer, but we've pulled out specifically just their interview and we've also distilled their key points, the key learnings and takeaways. So while you may have heard the interviews before if you've been religiously um, listening to every single episode, if you just want them all in one spot, all the children's and YA authors and picture book authors, um, you will find them all in this curated pop-up podcast series called Magic and Mayhem and it'll be just the interview with also just the key learnings and also Mm. this is really really exciting if you go to magicandmayhem.com.au you can download a free ebook that's going to contain all of the key learnings in there as well so make sure you check it out if you're interested in writing for this age group all right so Let's move on to our competition this week. We have five copies of Baby, a sunburnt psychological thriller of obsession and escape by one of the most exciting new voices in New Zealand fiction, Annalise Jokins. With stolen money and a dog in tow, Cynthia and her fitness instructor, Anna Hera, run away and buy an old boat called Baby, where Cynthia dreams they'll live together in a state of love. But strange events on an empty island turn their life in a very different direction, described by author Eleanor Catton as heavenly creatures for a new generation. Mm. Ooh, okay, so entries close on the 11th of February, so make sure you go and enter there. You could win one of five copies. Go to writercenter.com.au, slash win. That's writercenter.com.au, slash win. And if you're listening to this episode in the future, don't worry, just go to that URL and there'll be some other fabulous prize. Mm ready for you to
1: and also let's just have a little wave and a shout out to all of our New Zealand listeners because I know that we do have have a good percentage of uh, of Kiwis listening into us every week so hi to you guys and you know some great fiction coming out of New Zealand at the moment
0: absolutely um all right so let's move on to (laughs) are you ready for the word of the week
1: Val I am ready I was born ready.
0: I thought so. So it is canorous. Now it sounds a bit like a word that would describe a carnivorous creature, but it's not. Canaurus, that's canorous, that's C A N O R O U S. Some people might say canorous. Mm-hmm. Canorous or canorus. It means melodious in a musical sense. Oh. So you might say, Alison can belt out a Canorous jazz standard, especially when she's wearing her feather boa.
1: And if new listeners are wondering, I don't often wear a feather boa. There was a time when I featured oh, a on. feather boa. You lie.
0: You lie. Come on, tell the truth. I don't
1: wear it a lot. I had the one (laughs) feather boa one time. That's all. But
0: anyway, uh, yes. Okay. Well, I have never used the word. No, but she does belt out jazz standards on occasion. Do you know what
1: I have to say? I'm a little bit disappointed that we didn't get much any response to my new title theme song for "So You Want to Be a Writer." Remember I remember I put one together there a couple of weeks ago, sang it to you, you laughed hysterically. Yeah. Nobody mentioned it. I'm really disappointed. I obviously it was a dud, so I'm I'm gonna reassess. You're all like they're all like Book Boy going, Yeah, okay, go back to the go back to the drawing board. Try again, have another crack.
0: What is it if you don't have something nice to say to clearly
1: like just like stunning silence. Imagine if I had been standing up there in my feather boa singing that. And everyone was just looking at me like, oh, Al, please stop.
0: (laughs) I would have clapped.
1: (laughs) And I would have known you were being polite and that would have hurt even more
0: anyway. No. You know I can't hide my feelings. No, that's true. Very well. That's very true. Mm. Um, All right. So who's our writer in residence this week? We are speaking to Rachel Spratt, who –
1: Readers of uh, or, you know, fans of junior and middle grade fiction would recognise as R.A. Spratt, who is the creator of Nanny Piggins and Friday Barnes, um, both of which are, you know, very, very massive internationally, and her new series, The Pesky Kids, which looks like doing exactly the same thing. And the interesting thing about Rachel is that her background is all in TV. So this was a great opportunity to have a discussion about how that, Uh, TV background impacts on the style of writing that she does she also um, writes comedy and her series uh, all of them um, have that very definite underlying tenor of comedy so we talked about how to get comedy into various things and the joy of Rachel is that she's a very straightforward woman so this is a very straightforward interview um, that I think you guys will find really valuable. Rachel Spratt, also known as R.A. Spratt, is a best-selling Australian author and television writer. She is known for the Nanny Piggins and Friday Barnes series of books, which are both available in many territories worldwide, and there are currently two books out in her new middle grade series, The Pesky Kids. She also continues to write for television, specialising most recently in children's animation. So she is a very busy woman. Thank you so much for taking the time to talk to us today, R.A. Spratt.
2: Oh, hello. Well, it's fabulous and wonderful to be here. And thank you for taking the time to think that you could talk to me and that it would be worth your time and not the huge waste of your time.
1: I'm sure it's going to be highly entertaining. <laughs> all right. Now, we're going to go all the way back to the beginning. How did your first series, Nanny Piggins, Beloved Around the World, come to be published?
2: I come to be published? Mm. Um,
1: we, we're back well, in the I annals have, of time I, here.
2: Yeah, because people usually say, how did you come up with the idea? They don't ask How did it come to be published? So you threw me a little bit with your genius question. I know. Um, uh, It's actually I have, like when people say, oh, how do you get a book published? I always say I have the worst story and you don't want to hear it because it's the opposite of everybody else's story. I wrote a book and I wrote a book between getting engaged and getting married. So I got engaged in the August of 2006 and I got married in the December of 2006, which is quite a short engagement. Hmm. And during that time, I wrote The Adventures of Nanny Piggins. For a variety of reasons to do with my husband's schedule and not coming home. Anyway, I won't go into all of that. So anyway, in that four months, I planned a wedding and I wrote a book. But then I focused mainly on the wedding and getting married bit because I had to nail that down. And so um, I got married in England, so I went off to England. And before I went, I said to my agent, I've written this book. Could you show it to some people? And then I went off to England and I had a six month honeymoon, it's not six months, six week honeymoon <laughs> and I was traveling and I got back and I got like pregnant like that. So I had a lot on my mind and about four months later I said to my agent, so did anything happen with that book? And she's like, yeah, I sent it to five people and two of them are interested. I'm like, oh, that's cool. And then I'm pregnant so I'm going off to doctor's appointments and like a, a few months later I'm like, so um, so how's that all going? She's like, Penguin, ran, penguin. It was, it was Random House back then very interested, they're, they're, and they they had meetings with me, and they're, like, talking, they are so, shown to focus groups, but still, I'm more concerned about being married and pregnant and everything, and then one day, I, I give birth to the baby, and I'm in the maternity ward at Barrel Hospital, and she's a day old, and I'm in the hospital, my agent rings, she says, I've got good news and bad news. The good news is that you've got a book contract, so I'm like, oh, yeah, that's good news, and she said, the bad news is it's a two-book deal, and you've got three months to write the next one. So I've got like literally a one-day old baby in my arm and a contract saying I have to write a fifty thousand word book in the next three months. So that's how I got my publishing deal. I did not try hard. There's not like me sending it out to hundreds of people. It's like I gave it to my agent, she handled it and it just all sort of miraculously happened.
1: Okay. Interesting. What so just going back slightly from the baby, et cetera. So you got engaged, you're getting married in five minutes. Why? Why did you write Nanny Piggins right then?
2: Oh, you wanted to go back to I that. I do. Thing. I actually
1: want. I want you to tell me that. I want you to. I need to know how long that idea was percolating before you whipped it out between your engagement and I knew you your were marriage.
2: really interested in the actual. How did your book come to be no, published? No, no, I'm
1: fascinated um, by that. But I'm also interested. For me, as someone who, you know, has I written can't... books to short deadlines, the fact that you're engaged, you've got the pressure of a wedding, and you think now's a really awesome time to write this book, um, it'd be good to know. <laughs>
2: What brought that on, really? Well, I've always had an excellent work ethic. <laughs> <laughs> no, I, seriously, I have, I've got a whiteboard in my office and it's got a list of projects that I want to develop that I wrote about 15 years ago. Like I always right. literally, like on my, my computer right now, I have a list of five projects I want to develop. I always have a list of projects I want to develop. So if ever I find myself with a couple of weeks where my schedule go, is slower... Um, I will spend that time on developing one of those projects. It doesn't come up very often anymore. Usually when I did a lot more work in TV, it would come up at Christmas time. There would be like three or four weeks where I wasn't so busy and I would have a go at writing a pilot script or writing a film script. And so for me, that was something I did once or twice a year. Because it, it, in television, it's very like seasonal work. It's like fruit picking where you'll be really busy for four months and then you'll have a couple of weeks where it goes really quiet. So I had this routine of when I had some downtime, um, if it was just a couple of weeks, I was like, oh, well, I'll try and develop a project. So uh, I'd had this idea. It, it was literally on my list. I had this list. It was like the fourth item of my list was, was um, I think it was called Mary Piggins back then. And then I changed it to Nanny Piggins later. And I'd had this idea because I'd been working on a preschool show and I'd been very frustrated by the rules on a preschool show. And I was very frustrated because I didn't think they were focusing enough on creating an Entertaining uh, narrative for the children. I thought they were way too focused on trying to crowbar in educational content mm. to uh, suck up to the broadcasters and things like that. And they weren't like, just like, let's make something cool for kids. So I wanted to, I, I had all the, this idea and I pitched it originally as a television show. And they're like, oh, the idea of Nanny Piggins and with her circus connection. So it would be like a sitcom where there's Nanny Piggins and she's got human children, and her circus friends come by, and the kids are going to school, and it would be, you know, all the problems would evolve from that, and it would have the one set location, classic sitcom. So I pitched this to a television producer, and they said, that's a fantastic idea, this character is great, of course we'd have to water it down and change it and make her nicer to everyone, because there's no way you'd get this past all the broadcasters and be able to get like a coalition of international producers to throw in money, and I just thought, well, stuff that. The whole reason I want to do it is to not compromise. So then I thought, well, if I write it as a book, everyone will fall in love with it. And then when it becomes a television show, they won't be able to change it. So ah, that, that was, became That the was next literally step. my next question, was given your
1: background in television writing, why did you write Nanny Piggins as a book? And you've just you've just answered it for me. And so we can just move straight on to question three. So <laughs> which is this one. The TV experience that you have, how do you think it informs the way in which you actually write your books? I mean, you've oh, obviously very... got that list of projects, but what is it about your TV experience that really brings out, you know, an R.A. Spratt book?
2: Well, I write books as the, the television shows because I have no idea how to write a book. I have a very – like when I was at school, I was terrible at English. Um, I So I'm very conscious of – when I started doing it, I was very conscious of my limitations and self-conscious of – how bad I was at at my command of English and grammar and things like that. Like I I can obviously have a vocabulary and I'm expressive and I can tell stories, but I never learnt grammar properly. And um, I know my mind just has mental blocks with English the way others don't, people don't. But that said, my mind can do things with comedy and, dialogue that other people can't so my brain basically works differently hmm. with, with in terms of my command of the english language but i knew i knew how to write television so i basically if you look at my books it to me it's startlingly obvious and i'm amazed more people don't mention it my books are written like sitcoms like nanny piggins is literally every chapter is a separate story and i, I don't know how familiar you are with television writing but in a sitcom the idea is you have a set location you have four to eight main characters and the idea that characters can never evolve as people. Like they'll have a story arc but at the end of the story they return exactly to where they were at the beginning of the story. Yes. So Nanny Piggins is like that. The kids never get older. She never learns a lesson. She never evolves as a person. Each chapter is a separate story. And then like a television series like Friends or something, you'll have like a loose story that runs through each book. Mm. Um, so that's how I wrote Nanny Piggins. And I learned, obviously you write nine books, you learn something. So when I came to Friday at Barnes, I did bring some more sort of novel type strategies, more, um, classic book type strategies into those books. But still I was writing in a very similar way to you would write a television show, trying to make each like sort of, sort of sub, like I still think in terms of scenes and episodes, when I'm writing a book, even though it's chapters and, um, yeah, so. Interesting.
1: Because obviously when you're writing a series like Friday Barnes, which is very much, you know, you've got your main central character, she's solving the mysteries, there's got to be like you've got to have your classic novel character development through that um, as you go through. So is that something that you've had to work on as you've gone through those series?
2: Um, No, I I still think of it as as a sitcom. In my mind, you've got the location. It's a sitcom, set location. You've got the main characters. So there's Friday, Melanie, Ian, Binky, the headmaster, Uncle Bernie. They're probably the six main characters. And then everybody else, are like satellite characters. So you use them, but you use them spare. And then you have, as a school, you've got all these dynamics where outside people can come in because you get extra students come in or new teachers. So I still think of that as a sitcom. And I hear, I hear what you're saying about you, the development of the character. And I suppose she does evolve, but she doesn't evolve much, mm. but they really make me crow that like they do like the publishers have to like beat me over the head to get me to include that like right they okay. love it they they just pee their pants over the the most what I consider the most mundane uh, <laughs> you know uh, crow in you know they like me to have a moment where Fr- Friday feels really bad because she doesn't fit in with the other kids. so there's always like a moment in the book where it's like she feels really bad and then at the end she feels good because she saved the school so i yeah, think yeah, that's yeah. sort of that's her arc but it to, yeah
1: yeah okay so do you work closely with your editors when it comes to you know once you've drafted it you uh, drafted a first draft or second draft or whatever it is that you send to your editor to your publisher are you working closely with them on the development of the series or is it because that's quite a tv approach isn't it it's kind of a group collaborative kind of oh approach. god
2: no no i don't believe in that okay <laughs> I, cool. no i'm very different to other authors In that, because it's it's all—it's almost—I work differently to TV because of what my team. I try and get my drafts as ready to go as possible, so they have as little to do as possible. Because I don't want them changing anything, because I don't have any faith in their judgment. Which um, (laughs) (laughs) they're lovely, they're wonderful people. They can change my grammar as much as they like. But I am a I'm an egomaniac when it comes to story and character okay. and dialogue and um, particularly comedy and um, I think I'm yeah I'm the best judge of what goes in my book so I yeah I don't I would never I very rarely ask for input they they like ask for things like can you have a a pathos moment and I'll put that in but we don't like I don't do much in the way of structural editing okay. I mean, the first book of a series I would but. Nanny Pickens didn't get many structures. I don't think Nanny Pickens was ever structurally edited. It's more like them, they try and get me to take inappropriate things out sometimes. We have arguments about things like that. But So once not, they're yeah. set
1: up, you're basically like you're, you, you work at them on your own essentially until they're pretty much ready to go.
2: Yeah. and then, But they, they help me a lot with stuff like grammar and, and also, I mean, I do have things that I do that I shouldn't like. I don't, I like to write dialogue. So the things that that I I get reminded to do when I send in a a script are usually put in more bits in between the dialogue, and I very begrudgingly do that. And then the the note I often get is have more of a pathos moment. But then I do that myself now. I've sort of learned. And then um, and then they'll give me like if I've done something that's confusing, they'll say, okay, this is confusing. You haven't put enough information to explain that. So then sort of structurally kind of notes that I would get and I do get more structural notes now that I'm writing more narrative more complicated books so yeah I mean they do they, they're an enormous help but I just technically and structurally I'm pretty on top of things and I don't overwrite either like a lot of writers overwrite and then the editors help them write de- cut Take it down out, yeah. whereas I, I, I tend to underwrite yeah and then they have to ask me to put in more stuff so if I've got a 40,000 and I'd be like, if there's anything missing, tell me and I'll add it in.
1: Yeah, okay. So how many drafts are you doing on a a script? Let's call it a script because you're calling it a script but it's actually, you know, on a manuscript. How many drafts would you do before you think it's ready to go?
2: Well, I do a rough draft and I do all the way from the beginning to the end. I never edit as I go. Right. And, And then... I don't know, over like a three-week period, I will just go over it and over it from beginning to end, beginning to end, beginning to end. And I don't know how many times I would do that. Yeah. And yeah. Um, and then I'll read it aloud. Yeah. And I'll try and get my husband to read it, although he hasn't read the Pesky Kids books because um, he's a writer too. But he read all the Nanny Piggins and the Friday Barnes and he would give me a set of notes. Um, he's a comedy writer too, so I have like a lot of faith in his judgment okay. in terms of comedy. And... Um, and then I, I hand it in, and I'm always very self-conscious when I. Um, and then they, they give me the feedback, what they want me to add in, what haven't I put in, and what doesn't make sense, and then we'll go from there.
1: Do you know it's funny right from the start? Like, do you know it's funny when it's coming, when you're writing it? Do you are you are you sort of so enough in tune? Obviously, you're a, you know experienced comedy writer, but do you know it's funny on the page? Or is it not till you read it out loud that you can hear where it's working or not working?
2: Um, you definitely read it aloud will make you more aware, particularly, I, I should have said this, the pesky kids, because my kids are older, I've actually started, I read it aloud to myself, but I also read it aloud to them, which I never used to do with Nanny Pickens or Friday Barnes because they were younger and I just didn't have the time. Where Now I say to the publishers, I say to them, I'm going to read this to my kids, it's going to take a to do it because you know your kids aren't going to sit still while you read a whole book to them so it'll take me a week to do it night by night it's worth you waiting a week to get the book because I will get such valuable um, information from reading it to a child about where it where it lags and where it's funny I mean I never have any doubts about my ability to be funny because to me that's just the way I write so I don't think about it that way (laughs) The, thing, the most valuable information I get from reading it to my eight-year-old is where it lags and where it gets confusing. Yeah. So that's the stuff I get from her. But it is, it is handy to know where she will laugh at, out loud. But, um, but it's like Friday Barnes, I never intended Friday Barnes to be a comedy book. But it's just I'm a comedy writer. It just comes out that way. That's just the way I write.
1: Yeah, because it's interesting because you know Friday Barnes is obviously mystery, but Pesky Kids is mystery territory. So you're looking at strong plots here, um, but the the overwhelming voice of them is obviously funny. Yep.
2: Yeah, yeah, and I didn't really intend it. It's it's very hard, writer. Like you know when someone dies and you write like a little note in a card, it's it's very hard because you're a comedy writer and everything comes across either you're joking or you're sarcastic. So um. <laughs>
1: It's a cross to bear, isn't
2: it? <laughs> it is. It is. So, uh, All
1: So. right. Well, let's just switch to the mystery aspect for a
2: minute. Really? Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah, sorry. Our line's gone a little bit weird here. Yeah. So I'm gonna, we'll just keep going for a minute. I'm hoping it will come back for us. But um, what do you think is the key to writing a great mystery story for this age group?
2: Well, for a start, I would never try and write a great mystery story. I would desperately scrabble to write a mediocre one and then just pray that it was better than I thought it was. Um <laughs> Uh, it's often you write backwards. I mean, when I write Friday Barnes, you have a mystery for the whole book, but then you have little mysteries as well, like little puzzles for the readers. Um, and, and, the re- and that often is reverse engineered. Like you come up with a sort of an idea, often like a science-based idea, and then you sort of you get all the red herrings and you muddle it up backwards. But then the idea for the whole book, again – often the first thing I think up would be the action sequence at the end. Like my books always, again, this is television training, Is You want a, a really big action set piece right at the end as you arc from the second act into the third act. And so often that's like the first thing. Cause I think visually, cause I'm an animation writer. So like Friday Barnes three, I wanted in Friday on horseback chasing after someone on horseback where she's like clinging to him. Cause like that, and, and then, um, so I just had that visual image, and that was the starting point of the book. And then I had to reverse engineer it. So I think, who are they chasing on horseback? And so I thought I'd had this idea about Prince Charles going had gone to Geelong Grammar. So I thought, what if there's a royal, someone in a royal family at their school? And then I thought, well, how can that be a mystery? And you think, well, what if it's someone. Uh, pretending to be in the royal family, they're really in the royal family and then and then you think, well, what if they steal something because they're a con artist and then you just sort of reverse engineer it. So I know from when the first page I'm writing it that this is going to be the story so then I start lacing through all these hints and, yeah, that's how it works.
1: Okay, so you're working out the plot before you start, then you start writing and you're working through those red herrings as you go.
2: Yeah, and it, yeah, once you know what the conclusion is – it's like it's actually almost mundane because you think how can the readers not realize that this is what's going to happen but of course they don't know so to them it's sort of it does unravel piece by piece yeah so it 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 is weird you've got to have faith in the 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 method
1: all right so tell us about your new books tell us about the pesky kids where did that where i'm going to ask you the great writerly question of all time where did they come from where did the idea for those guys come from
2: uh, well, all my books, I always, like people say, Where, what's the idea? And it's like, well, it's not one. It's like, it's a compilation of hundreds of ideas. So like, because I always start off with like a sitcom I, um, structure, I, I thought, the, th- the first thing I thought of is I wanted a book about brothers and sisters who fight because I'd worked on this television show called The Skinner Boys, which was about three brothers and their cousin. And It was really fun writing the dialogue because brothers and sisters talk to each other totally different to the way normal humans talk to each other. And I thought, uh, because they just they just niggle at each other and they have a go at each other constantly. So I thought that's a lot of fun because when you write a story, you want conflict, and brothers and sisters are in a constant state of conflict. So I thought I want that. And then I started thinking about the Famous Five and I thought, I want Enid Blyton's huge sales and royalties. <laughs>
1: Don't we all, darling?
2: So, <laughs> so I thought, that's a really good format. And one of my kids said to me, have a dog because kids love dogs. And I'm like, really? I'm like, yeah. And so totally right because Pumpkin is, is – like when I ask kids which is their favorite character, they often say the dog, Pumpkin. So I thought, well, I'll use the Famous Five. I have four kids, three are brothers and sisters, the next door neighbor and the dog. And uh, they're the, the pesky kids. And then, so that was the setup in terms of characters. And then I needed to give them a location, like a sitcom. That's the classic thing. What's the situation? And so I thought, like, I live in a country town, Boweral, which is very eccentric and has very uh, strange and random festivals every weekend, <laughs> like the Potato Olympics and the Carpathalon and the busking competition. So I thought, this is perfect. And there's so many eccentric characters in town. I thought this is perfect, so I'll I'll get these kids that fight all the time, a dog that bites people, and I'll put them in this town. So then I had to think, well, why do they come to this town? And I wanted to really, like, I I wanted to start with a big action set piece. And I had this idea when I first started writing books, and I first went to Random House, the offices, and there's all these lovely middle-aged ladies, and I did like the maths on how much money my book was going to make and how much money books made, and I realised. Publishing doesn't make any sense as a business. There's so little money in it. And I was looking and thinking, well, and I've been watching a lot of alias, and I thought, what if publishing is just a front for an international espionage network? <laughs> like in Get Smart, how they all say they work in the greeting card industry. <laughs> and so I started to think about that, how all these like really nice middle-aged ladies would be perfect spies because If someone waltzed in dressed like James Bond, you know, super good looking and in a tuxedo, you think, oh, that guy's up to something. Whereas if, you know, like a lovely publishing executive wafted in and said, can I get you a cup of coffee or something? You would never expect her to then choke you out and steal all your secrets. (laughs) No, you would not. So I had that idea in my head. So I thought, well, what if these kids had a mom who they thought was really boring, but it actually turned out. That she was a really top international super spy with all these mad action skills. So then you could have this big action set piece at the beginning when this is all revealed, and then they get whisked to this country town to go and live with a dad that they haven't seen for eleven years. And I thought, well, that's a really strong setup, and it also sets up a lot of tension because mm. you know they've not met their dad. Before and they're upset with their mom and they're in this town where it's so strange and so different. Plus, they fight all the time. So that's how I came up with the premise.
1: Right, I like that. See, I'm going with you on the journey, and you haven't even started yet. Like it's (laughs) (laughs) fantastic. So, was it something like? Was this something that you had on your project board for a long time, or was this? Was it sort of like you've written the last Friday Barnes book, and now you're thinking, okay, what am I going to do now?
2: Oh, no, I had it on the project board or post-it note. I'm on a, onto post-it notes now. So I had like half a dozen things and I'd been pitching a few things. Like I'd, I, was, I really want to do, because I, I have an animation background, I really want to do a book that is, um, it's a book but less words, like 25,000 that's heavily illustrated because, um, you know, like The Treehouse or Dover of a Wimpy Kid because I can illustrate a bit but I really want to work with a good illustrator. I just think there's a gap in the market because all those books—you think about it—the Treehouse, uh, Diary of a Wimpy Kid, Bad Guys—but um, but a lot of them they're by male authors and they're very uh, like boy orientated. Yeah. And and my daughter is is a bit of a reluctant reader. She's a very visual thinker, and I just thought I'd love to write because I'm a visual thinker too. I would love to write a book for that, you know, in because it would be more like writing animation where you're you're. You're thinking visually as well, yeah, so I, th- yeah. I, I, I'd been pitching a lot of those ideas and hadn't been able to get one up, and then, um, and then I pitched this, and they, I think I could have just gone in and pitched, you know, I'm going to write an agriculture manual, and they would have said yes because Friday Barnes had done so well, um, and it does sound a little bit flaky. Oh, I'm going to write a book about brothers and sisters who fight all the time, mm-hmm. but God bless them, they had faith in me and they said, yep, that's okay. Like I pitched, like I, I've already got the next two ideas I, I want to write as well, or, or here so I'm planning long in advance
1: so just out of interest because um in Matmaker 4 I have brothers who who uh bicker constantly because mm. I have two boys and that's what brothers do and so they
2: the, say the best things don't they
1: they do and they're hilarious and some of the feedback that I got during the editing process from that from from a from a uh a proofreader in fact was that she felt that I, the boys were too mean to each other And um, I was a bit like, yeah, nah, do you have boys? Obviously not. And I left them exactly the the way they were. But do you get that sort of pushback at all when you're sort of writing, you know, slightly anarchic, you know, characters who are bickering and carrying on with
2: each other? The short answer is no, but I think I have a very different relationship with my editor where I just push back really hard because I come from TV where people are really mean. So if someone said that to me, I would just like, no, and I, you know, like, so. um,
1: I just laughed and ignored it, so that was (laughs) probably similar.
2: It's also because I do comedy, it's got a different tone, so you can get away with way more when you do comedy. Yeah. And also the thing is because I've got 20 years' experience in TV, yes, they bicker, yes, they're constantly at each other, but I have internalised all the rules of television. So people say, oh, your characters, they say dreadful things to each other, and it's like point to one because – they never hit each other.
1: No.
2: Um, they never say swear words. No. They, so I'm very good at not stepping over the line because I've been trained very hard by all the television yeah. um, script editors I've worked for. So, yeah, I mean, um, part of it is I just – they I don't think they, they say things to me like that because – they know that I'm going to push back hard. I think it's scared
1: of you, Rachel. Is that what you're saying?
2: <laughs> I, I go for Well, they're so young as well. They're like in their mid-20s. And um, they're just like I have all this inner rage from 20 years of working in TV and they're just so <laughs> nice and young. But, um, but they do, they, they get, sometimes they like steal themselves and they have a go at me about something. But it's usually about something that's a specific issue for them. So um, I had a, a line where Loretta and you couldn't get a more feminist character than Loretta, and you really couldn't get a more feminist author than me in terms of like Nanny Piggins and Friday Barnes are great role models for kids and they say all this great stuff about the uh, you know that that challenges your concepts of gender roles. So I've got like this long back catalog of me like saying all these interesting things and getting into kids' minds and challenging their assumptions. But Loretta in the last book she said something like um semantics are something feminists use when they haven't got anything actual real to argue about <laughs> and it was just an off the cuff comment and Loretta's a feminist and also it says in the book she's a sociopath and um, so it's not like I'm saying that this is true or that it's my point of view I'm just saying Loretta said that yeah. but it, it kind of blew their brains a bit and yeah. I d- it does get to the point where like I don't get a lot of complaints, but you do sometimes get like mentally ill people write to you and have a go at you about obscure things. And I just thought, you know what, I cannot be bothered receiving the emails at two o'clock in the morning from some yeah. nut bar telling me that I am degrading women. So I did change that. You did change And the, that. Other, the other thing that I change is in America, when my books are edited for the American audience, they're very, very sensitive about race issues, very, very, very sensitive. So they – and my editor over there is um, – she's a, a Chinese-American. Like, she's born in America, but she's of Chinese descent. And she's very, very conscious of, of um, uh, anything uh, about Asian uh, uh, representation. Yeah. So she's, she's asked me to change a couple of things that she um, was sensitive about. And, and, you know, obviously that's fine with me. Ironically, though, <laughs> she's Chinese-American – Uh, At one stage, my editor over there was Japanese-American. The illustrator was um, working on the project, Dan Santat's Thai-American. And when they illustrated the book, there was no one in the illustrations who wasn't white. Oh, really? And and so I was uh, was so upset and I was like, you know, I come from a really multicultural part of Sydney. It just, in my head, the characters don't look like this because, as I said, don't do big character descriptions. So, and, so from then on, I would, like, write a list of the ethnicity of all the characters when wow. I sent the book to them just so that would never, ever happen again. It's interesting, isn't
1: it? But then as a commercial author, you have to be across, you know, the sensitivities and interests of, of all the different markets that your books, you know, will be in. And, and that, I guess that involves, you know, doing what you have to do, doesn't
2: it? Yeah, but you think, yeah. Well, like, in terms of sensitivities, yes, definitely I will accommodate what they ask for, even if I do think they're being a bit oversensitive. Yep. um and um but I couldn't believe it when the illustration like it, it's yeah. a consistent it's a consistent problem with illustrators um that you've got to remind them to um, do abroad I mean it, fair enough, they're focused on the one illustration but when you've got a whole book you've got to make sure yep. that um, the different ethnicities are represented yeah.
1: All right, so just moving, changing gears slightly, let's talk about promotion stuff. Um, I mean, I follow you online across various different platforms, so I know that you're already working on your third pesky book, even though the second one's only just recently out. But how do you feel about that sort of social media and keeping your profile up online? How do you feel about that aspect of being an author?
2: It's full on. It's it's definitely work and it definitely takes, uh, you know, it's a big chunk of your time because the sort of the casual posts – they, there's usually a lot more goes into them than it's like, you make it look like it. it's the art of um, being a, in the public eye um, is you make it seem effortless, but you put a lot of effort into getting it right. Yeah. So um, like getting a photo that you're happy with and also being across all the different mediums, you've got to be very, very careful because Instagram, Facebook and Twitter all have very different sensibilities and, um, like you get more young people on Instagram, then it's obviously more wordy on Twitter, it's all these things you've got to be across all of that, and um, it's very, very important to your image and marketing yourself. And um, you know, I, I, I live in a country town that's a huge part of how I project myself out onto the marketplace, so it is important you do take it, got to take it seriously. Like, I've got a the cheapest iPhone I could I, uh, possible I got two years ago, and I'm, I've got, got to look at mine. One of these new iPhone Xs that costs like twelve hundred dollars. Just I don't have that much money, but I got to look at it because when I was doing the koala and Yabba tours with the other authors, they had these great phones, and their photos are, were so much better than mine. And you think, I need to be able to take photos that good. It's part of part of the job part of the job now yeah so yeah and but when i started being an author 10 years ago i remember getting in the car with my publicist one day and say i can update my website from my phone now and they're going like really you can do that i mean when i first started touring you couldn't get google maps on your phone so now (laughs) (laughs) but now like i'll do a school visit i'll get in the car i'll you know do the photo up on on with the filters and stuff I can put it on my website, on Instagram, on Facebook. But, but it's like I used to do it. But now you, you, at the end of the day, you go back to your hotel and you spend an hour getting the photo just right and working out exactly what you want to say. And you only really want to post once a day so that your followers don't get annoyed with you. Yeah. And then you, you want to think about doing some posts so that you put it on Instagram and it shares automatically with Facebook and Twitter because then you go up in the algorithms. Yeah. But the problem with that is if you do that, then you don't get a photo on Twitter so some posts you want to do separately so it looks better so it's it's really <laughs> you, complicated. You're all over it. <laughs> yeah, well it's like I'm not on top of it as other people. Like I I go to get into Facebook stories where you do multiple posts a day to me that just it's so much effort. Yeah. But um but uh, cuz I've got a background in television production and I studied it at university, like I've got the skills like I can, I've got I can get my office, I can get the lighting state in here to look fantastic. And I can do a video that looks great. And so I was like one of the first authors on YouTube with a YouTube channel because when I was writing my books, I was you know I had very young babies and I was pregnant. so And I went and bought a puppet, like custom-made, like $1,000 puppet from America of Nanny Piggins because I knew I couldn't tour. So I was going to do videos and put them on YouTube and my website. And I remember telling the publisher this 10 years ago, and they were like literally laughing at me and rolling their eyes like I was a quaint idiot from another industry who didn't know what they're doing. And now you think that's what everyone does, book trailers and everything. And it's like, yeah. yes, I did know what I was talking about you all those ahead years of ago. the curve. <laughs> and, and you look on my YouTube channel, I have had so many thousands of people watch those videos. Yeah.
1: So you also do a lot of school visits. Like you're often out there, you know, talking to kids, you know, to help promote your books. What, what do you think is the key to a great <sighs> school visit?
2: Well, I see it as like, When I did my first ever day of school visits, I did it up in the Blue Mountains, and I think it was Blackheath Public School, and I think it was the second one of the day, and I was sitting at the back of the hall as the kids were filing in, and I said to the teacher, is there anything you want me to talk about with the kids, thinking that they'd want me to talk about, you know, some sort of lesson planning kind of thing, and she said, just get up there and sell your books, because we want the kids to read books, and so I've always had that in my mind of sell your books, and it's like, well, what's the best way to sell my books? And it's to be positive and upbeat about them, positive and upbeat about myself and about reading. So I try and bring a lot of energy and positive energy. And um, I used to have a background in stand-up, so I do. A, I, I handle it the way you would with stand-up, which is you start out by doing a lot of crowd interaction, and that's when you gauge the crowd and also when they gauge you. So it's your opportunity to let them know how far they can, they can interact with you, but also to keep them in check if they get out of hand. And also... Right give the teachers a wake-up call, like do something, embarrass them a little to, at the start if they're not paying attention, just set it up. So you do that for like 10 minutes. And then I think I'm there to sell books. I'm really good at reading my own books. So I read my own books and now I do two readings of about 10 minutes each. Wow. And the other the other thing I think is kids love stories and the more you can spend your presentation telling them stories, the better. So if I'm going to do a 10-minute reading, I'll spend 10 to 15 minutes setting it up and by like telling them where i came up with the ideas and telling them stories about things my kids said to me and telling them stories about about um how i got this idea for this beginning point so i spend like 15 minutes just telling them stories off the top of my head and then i'll go into the reading which is another story and then i do about 10 minutes of question and answer Um, and that's down to because then they're giving me input and that's the opportunity to for them to like hit on any um, like syllabus points they want to and to hit on, you know, like how do you come up with the ideas? What's, what's your process stuff? And then I finish up with another reading. So I go back into telling stories, setting it up, doing a reading. And then I just do some big entertainment stuff at the end. So I'll like, depends on the group. Like I used to do the puppet stuff and nanny pigs would come out and yell at all the kids and they would love that. And, or I've got rockets that I fire and I like aim at the teachers and they love that. And then um, because Nanny Piggins is a flying pig, she'd get blasted out of a cannon. So I had like a picture of Nanny Piggins taped to a a foam rocket. And I'd say, this is Nanny Piggins like getting blasted. And so, and then I'd say, who am I going to hit in the head? And then they'd say, me, 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 me. And I'd say, no, no, you've got to think creatively and laterally. That's what writers do. I could hit you or I could hit one of your teachers. And they're like, oh yeah. And I say, which is the most awful teacher here? And then they're (laughs) screaming and then I'm firing rockets. And then now I've got a song as well that I do all about why you should read books. Is that and when I'll the get... bugle comes out? Oh, no, no. The bugle's the starting point. Oh. <laughs> the bugle is key. Like people like, laugh at my bugle and I'm they roll laughing. their eyes. No, no, you just literally did. And people are like, oh, you know, literally you're like a clown. But let me tell you, if you are in a tent at the Somerset Festival and there's 400 kids in front of you and you go out to start your presentation – and you say hello, and the microphone isn't turned on, and the sound you look up, and the two sound kids are at the back of the thing talking to each other, not looking at you. So you've got to get all 400 people in that room looking at you simultaneously and get the sound kids' attention and let them know the microphone isn't on a bugle is the best way to do that. I
1: was going to say, I, I think the first time I ever saw you ever was at Somerset. We were both on at Somerset and you walked past me and you had a bugle. And I was like, I'm feeling a little bit underdressed here. I don't have a
2: bugle. <laughs> well, I got the idea from this uh, poet I traveled with in New Zealand who had a huge conch shell and he would play it as the kids were coming in to like beckon them. Wow. And it was so, it sounded really mysterious and fantastic. And I thought, I've got to get one. But then I thought... In Australia, you're not allowed to pick up things off the beach. Mm. And so I thought, what else can I get? And so I got a bugle. But it is fantastic because, particularly, like schools, are, you, you, the introduction you get at, you, at schools and libraries is usually diabolically bad. Yeah. Like, you'll get some librarian who's just angry, or some librarian who's researched you extensively and wants to read out every fact about you before you start. And they basically just suck all the energy out of the room. And oh, or the best one is, you're there, and just before you start, they'll just be screaming at the kids. We got this author. She's come all the way from and I'm sick of you. And I want you to show respect. And anybody doesn't get respect, <laughs> you're here and, you're like, and then you've got to come on and be the happy-go-lucky author. Or well, the, the classic one is like you go to a library, and they'll read out the occupational health and safety rules before you start. And it's like if you have an injury, you can go to the break room. <laughs> huh? I had one librarian who once she came on before and she's like, ha. Ah! If if she's boring, you can just get up and go to the toilet. And the door to the toilet was behind where I was going to be doing the presentation. Yep, I should yeah. just get up and walk straight past her in the middle of the presentation. That's fine. So when I came out, this and so that's what you need the bugle for. It's like to undo the terrible introduction you have just had <laughs> and bring energy back to the room. Because literally the bugle is so loud, everyone like that, anyone in the immediate vicinity will flinch. And everyone will look at you like, what is going on? And sometimes teachers burst in from other rooms like to tell you off and then I just like glare at them. But anyway, so I did this in this one library and I I played my bugle and I had everyone's attention. I said, I just want you to know, anyone who gets up and walks past me to go to the toilet, I will kill you with my bare hands.
1: (laughs) Right. And how did that go down for you, R.A. Spratt? (laughs)
2: <laughs> well, it did create a little bit of a lull, but it made me feel better. Sometimes you just got to make yourself feel better. There was a way they could go to the toilet, like by going out through the back and around a corridor. And I said, you can just do that. And then I went into my full entertaining show. But sometimes, because I just get something in my mind like I'm going to kill someone. Right. And you just got to say it because otherwise it's going to fester in your brain. Once you said it, it's out. And then you can move on. Right,
1: and so you move on beautifully with your bugle. All right, speaking of moving on, we must move on to the, to the last question of our presentation today, which is your top three tips for writers. So apart from get yourself a bugle,
2: what are your <laughs>
1: top three tips for writers?
2: So seriously, you want it to be about writing or about being an author and the world which, of being an author? Just
1: whatever you want. Like, you know, this is your show. This, I, I, having had this conversation where you kill people with your bare hands and you push back, <laughs> I'm, not, I'm not setting boundaries here.
2: Well, if you are a writer and you get a book deal or, you know, you've got your your first foot on the first rung, the the number one tip I give people, and they never listen to me, but this is the number one tip that I've been giving people for 20 years, is get yourself an entertainment accountant Uh because um, you don't just want your accountant that your dad had or your bog standard down the road accountant. Get one that is specific to the entertainment industry. There's a couple of big agencies. Um, you're not going to earn a lot of money, but you're going to be able to claim a lot when you're an author. There's, and then there's lots of other things like you can do income averaging. So the tax system works very different for creatively, creative people. So you want an accountant who's across all that. Plus, you're going to get your income in big fits and spurts, so you don't want to the tax department to go, hey, what's going on? You want them to say, oh, they've got those really good entertainment accountants, they'll be handling it. So that's my top tip. If you actually become a writer and an author and get a book deal, get an accountant who can help you and who knows about the business because it's going to be different. The entertainment business is different to any other business. Okay, cool. In terms of writing, people say to me, I've written a book and I can't get it published, what should I do? And my answer is, have you considered that it's a bad book? And you've written a bad book, and maybe you need to write another book and see if it's better. And that might be a bad book too. And then you might have to write a third, fourth, or even fifth book. Mm. Because Nanny Pickers was my third book, and the first two books I wrote were really awful. Now, if you really want to do this, do you really want to do this? Like, like it's like running a marathon. It sucks, and it's long, and you, you know, it's six months of your life to do something that you may fail at. But do you want to do this? Do you really want to do this? And have you accepted the possibility that the reason your book is not getting published is because it's bad, and that maybe you need to start from scratch and write another one? So that's my other thing: is people complain they can't they get their book published, and it's like, well, have you tried writing another book, a different book? Um, and and I don't know what I don't know about a third piece of advice. Um, trust your ability. Like, that, that, yeah, that would be my third piece of advice. Is there's all these people out there who like promote themselves as like mentors and writing coaches and it's like i'm lucky because i've had so many years experience in the television industry but i really think you've got to have faith in yourself i don't part of my egomania is i don't trust other people's judgment and it's a lot of the time i've worked it's turned out that i've been right and they have been wrong so just be really, really careful of showing people your work and asking them for advice. People love giving advice. It doesn't mean they know that what they're talking about. Mm. People just love being able to tell you stuff and feeling wise. Mm. But um, oftentimes their advice is no good or they're an idiot. Like my husband is a fantastic creative writer, very ta- talented comedy writer. When I wrote Nanny Piggins, he gave me all this advice and I went through it followed about 5% of it. And I, I'm very grateful to him giving me all that advice. But I had enough judgment to know, no, that's not a good idea because of this. And that's not a good idea because of that. And no, you're just wrong about this. And no, and also to just know what I've done is good. So some of these things I'm like, yeah, that's great. But just have faith in yourself and be very, very, very careful of asking people for advice. Fantastic. Particularly people who aren't very successful themselves. Yes. Like your family. Your family are the worst people to get to read your material because they hate you to start with, so they're only going to run you down.
1: <laughs> Especially your kids, right?
2: I-, I showed my mother my first book and all she did was correct the spelling. It made me cry.
1: Oh, Oh well, you've moved on from there, so that's good, right?
2: Oh, you never move on from those those injuries, those emotional injuries. <laughs>
1: Get yourself a bugle. All right. Well, thank you so much for your time today, Rachel. Really, really appreciate it. Some fantastic well, advice I hope I was in there. Cool.
2: And I hope I haven't like shattered anyone's image of me because I was told this is for grown-ups. So it's like I want to be frank and honest. Like. When I do, when I'm RA Sprout, I have a different persona and I'm more upbeat and I'm happy and jokey, but I want to be honest and helpful to people. And so that's why I've taken this conversation quite seriously today. And
1: you have, and I'm I'm very much appreciative of that. And I'm sure that our listeners are also very appreciative of it as well. We very much appreciate your time. Well,
2: good luck to you all. And just ignore everyone, your geniuses, just have lots of goes. That's the summary of my advice. <laughs> Thanks a lot. <laughs>
0: This podcast is brought to you by the Australian Writers' Centre, a world leader in writing courses. Our course, Pitch Your Novel, How to Attract Agents and Publishers, gives you practical steps to attract agents and publishers to your manuscript. Presented by author Natasha Lester, this course gives you a step-by-step guide on how to create the perfect synopsis and cover letter. Find the right publisher and deal with the offers you get for your book. Natasha shares the same steps she used on her novel that resulted in a bidding frenzy between four publishers. So now it's your turn. With our on-demand courses, you can learn in your own time with 12 months access to all course materials. Find out more at writerscentre.com.au slash pitch. All right, there you go, Rachel Spratt or R.A. Spratt. Thanks for doing the interview out. So what are you doing in the coming week before we speak again? Uh, let's see.
1: I am writing. I am editing. Mm. I'm going to endless school meetings because that's what the start of the year is all about oh. is endless school meetings? So I'm mm. going to those with a smiling face. Yeah. Yep. And, um, yeah, just that's it really. That's what we're doing. What about mm. you? What are you doing?
0: What am I doing? I'm still in the middle of the Sydney Lunar Festival. Oh, of course. Yeah, many listeners will know I'm creating, um, curating, and um – it goes until the 10th of February, and after which I'm going to have a bit of a rest and I'm going to get my life back. But it, I'm, I have no complaints. It's been really, really great. Um, last night I was down um, leading a bunch of people on a tour of the Lunar Lanterns, which are the uh, huge giant art installations representing each of the animals of the Zodiac um, lining Sydney Harbour. And one of the exciting things was um, – seeing the Harbour Bridge because uh, I was bea- I was able to have creative input into the lights on the Harbour Bridge during the period of the festival and mm. I have to say, right? well, because it's the year of the pig, what colour is associated with the pig, Al? Pink. 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 And right. – I love pink, uh, right. my teapot is pink, my hairdryer is pink, and now the Harbour Bridge is pink. <laughs> 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 so this tickles me. It's just like a life achievement.
1: It tickled you pink, didn't life it? It's gosh, a life, a life achievement gosh, right life here. Gosh
0: exactly it's like it's it's tickled me pink to no end so I kind of sat there there's it's actually um, I'll let you guys in on a secret there's a great bar at the Opera House at, at benalong you don't have to dine you can just go to the bar area mm. and it has the single most best view of the Harbour Bridge ever so I just sat there with my Pinot Grigio and just stared at the Harbour Bridge for basically because it goes actually from red to pink. Red for Lunar New Year, and then pink for the Year of the Pig, and and um, you know some other light combinations. And yes, that tickled me to no end. So I'm very excited. <laughs> <laughs> Fantastic. All right. So um, where do we find you online, Al? Uh, you'll find me at alisontait.com,
1: dot com. You'll find me on Twitter at at Al Tate, A-L-T-A-I-T. And you will find me on Facebook and Instagram at Alison Tate Writer.
0: And you, Val, where do we find you? You'll find me at Valerie Koo, that's K-H-O-O on Twitter and Instagram. Make sure you connect with both of us in the podcast community on Facebook for listeners. It's free to join. Just search for So You Want To Be A Writer podcast community and request to join. We'd love to have you in there. And, of course, you can find all the show notes at soyouwanttobeawriter.com.au. Thanks for listening, everyone, and we look forward to chatting to you again next time. Bye.